Well, based on what happened last week, uh, I assume like 15 minutes after we get done recording this, some massive deal is going to go down. So get excited, uh, whatever fan base it is that will net, you know, some Mike Trout. Huge... Yeah, exactly. Mike Trout or <laughs> congratulations, Mike Trout on joining Coon to do named later. <laughs> yeah, no, it's uh, that's after last week. That's uh, that's where we're headed today. Hi, everybody. Welcome into this week's edition of the show before the show podcast from MILB.com. I am Tyler Maughan in Denver, Colorado, and New York City is Sam Dykstra. Hi, Sam. Hi, Tyler. Yeah, last week we got done with uh, episode 87 of the, uh, the podcast uh, live from the winter meetings. Sam and Ben live from the winter meetings in National Harbor, Maryland. And it was like not even two hours later that the news became official for this week's topic for strike one, which we will get to momentarily. But before we do, thanks for tuning into this week's edition of the show. You can find us as always at MILB.com slash podcast. And there you can find all the pertinent links and information to how to find us on iTunes and the Stitcher app and RSS feeds and all kinds of good stuff where you can give us a rating and a review and a subscription. Let us know what you think of the show. Um, We've been just like flying through good reviews on iTunes, which is, I think people are rating it based on you. I don't think, I don't think so. anybody's. That's not true. I don't know who. I don't know who's logging on. It's like well, we're twenty-seven reviews. They're all five stars. Well, Ben was trying to divide us this week. He was. That's true. That is true. But Good I'm jerk. glad that, that guy picked you. Ben proposed a question to somebody on Twitter: uh, Are you are you a Dykstra fan or a Mon fan? But I liked his comparison. As if you he can't said, be both. He said you. It seemed like a, a Porcello-like year for you. Like you're really ready to break out. Yeah. Well. Like, I know some people who really didn't like Rick Porcello in 2015, so <laughs> that makes me think there were a lot of people who really did not like Sam Dykstra in 2015. I don't know, and what, now they're cool with him. I don't know what my I don't know what my comp would be. I don't, I don't think, know, but that just means I win a lot. I think I I, I leave well, you the ever win, important no matter what stat of wins. <laughs> Hashtag pitcher wins from Sam. Um, so with that in mind, the winningest guy on the minor league baseball podcast is going to break it all down for us in strike one of this week's edition of three strikes. Last week, we broke down that big prospect laden trade in which the Boston Red Sox sent Yohan Moncada and Michael Kopech to the Chicago White Sox in exchange for Chris Sale. And you think prospects galore. The Red Sox sending the top prospect in the game and their number five overall prospect to get back a star in Chris Sale. Man, we never see deals like that. And then literally two hours after we recorded that episode, Lucas Giolito, the top pitching prospect in baseball, along with Reynaldo Lopez, the number 38 overall prospect in baseball, and another pitcher, go along with Dane Dunning from the Washington Nationals to the Chicago White Sox in exchange for Adam Eaton. We didn't get a chance to talk about this deal last week, but within about 30 hours, the White Sox acquired the top prospect overall in all of baseball. According to MLB Pipeline, the top position player prospect and top overall prospect, Yohan Makata, and then the top pitching prospect one day later in Lucas Giolito. I mean, this is a huge, huge coup for the White Sox. Uh, your thoughts on this Giolito slash Lopez slash Dunning deal? Yeah, so so the thing that has to stand out to you about this is, you know, from our perspective, I think you hit it really hard there with talking about Giolito got traded. You would think they must get a really big return for that um you know an all-star caliber player adam eaton in a lot of people's eyes isn't that player but i i want to stop that before any of us get too far adam eaton is a really really good player uh, last year he was w- worth 6.0 war 
uh, wins above replacement, according to Fangraphs. Uh, hit 284, 362, 428, 14 homers, 14 stolen bases. Uh, after a move to right field, he had great defensive value over there. Uh, you know, using his his speed and a uh, pretty decent arm in right. So a six WAR player is really good. Add on top of that, the fact that uh, he's got really good team control. He's under control for the next five seasons, I believe. Uh, 18.4 million dollars he's owed for the next three years. Uh, nine and a half million dollar option for 2020. Uh, Ten and a half million team option for 2021. So. You know, if you're going to get a really good, really controllable player like Adam Eaton, you're going to have to pay through the nose. And, you know, that's what it feels like the Nationals did. Uh, You know, Giolito, MLB Pipeline has him right now as the game's top pitching prospect. Reynaldo Lopez, you know, is also a top 50 guy. He's currently ranked number 38 on that list. Uh, You know, the thing with both of those players is they both pitched in the major leagues this year, uh, neither of which did, you know, particularly well, at least to make you think that they have a guaranteed spot in a Washington rotation next year. Uh, Giolito posted a 6.75 ERA with 11 strikeouts and 12 walks, so not a good <laughs> not a good uh, ratio there by any stretch of the imagination. In 21 and in the third frames last year uh, for Washington, Lopez had a 4.91 ERA, 42 strikeouts over 44 innings while working as a starter and reliever uh, in Washington. So both of them were probably going to head back to AAA, Syracuse. Uh, you know, next year they would have a chance to bang down the door. The thing to like about Giolito, you know, his fastball can be really good. He lost a little velocity in the majors, uh, but normally he's running mid 90s, can touch upper 90s when he needs to. Has one of the best curveballs I've ever seen in the minors. It's a real hammer curve. Uh, can really make guys knees buckle. Uh, Lopez. Some people think he he might be a uh, reliever going forward. His fastball is really good. His curveball can be good. Uh, doesn't really have a changeup yet. Um, you know, his control at times is good. At times wavers a little bit. So he might be someday turned into an elite reliever on the north side of Chicago. Uh, but it, if you're looking at this at, in terms of the potential, the White Sox could have made a killer move here. Uh, but it, it seems like Giolito, at least, you know, even when it, his high ranking now, that could change uh, when your rankings are updated. Uh, I know a lot of people think Victor Robles actually pipped him now as the top prospect in that Nationals system before the trade. Uh, so maybe Giolito's light is kind of going out just a little bit. Um, but if he you know, hits on all cylinders next year, returns to the form that we know he has, and uh, you know, can do as well as he did in the minors in 2016 at the major league level, uh, th- this feels like it could be a coup, but again, you know, I go back to if you're just thinking of it as Adam Eaton, kind of high 200s hitter um, with with some pop and a little speed, you think this is an overpay. If you think that of this as Adam Eaton, you know, a really really good uh, outfielder that could be the last piece in the puzzle for the Washington Nationals, then that's going to tip the scales a little bit. Um, so you know, you have to kind of sit back and evaluate all sides on this, not just the prospect side, which can get overrated a little bit, let's be honest, in our in our version of work. But, uh, yeah, we'll, we'll see how this is going to play out, probably by the end of Eaton's contract or by the end of, you know, Giolito or Lopez's time in, in Chicago. Yeah, I mean, what's interesting about it from the national side is you had a, a non-traditional 
uh, non-home-positioned guy playing center field in Trey Turner, who now gets to go back to his natural position at shortstop. And Adam Eaton, who has been at his best, arguably, as a corner guy in his career, he'll hold down the center field spot in Nats Park. It seems like everything falls into place. And like you said, the attractive part of that for the Nationals is they have so much control in that deal with Adam Eaton. And for a team that you know, has spent in large part like a massive market team over the last few years. The Nationals kind of have to pick their battles in that circumstance, especially, you know, the the stories came out. Bryce Harper wants a $400 million extension. We don't know how true that actually is, but there are definitely big pieces out there for the Nationals that they need to be cost conscious of going forward. That's what I think made it really attractive from their perspective to get somebody with that much team control. But that being said, If you're a White Sox fan, and that's where we really approach this conversation from, since we're talking about it from the prospect side, this organization went from being arguably a bottom five system before the winter meetings to a top five system on those two deals alone. Because you bring in Yuan Mankata, who is a star in the making. And like you said, I mean, Giolito did not have the best 2016, but there's a reason that he's been ranked as the top pitching prospect in baseball for a while now. Uh, and even when he wasn't, it wasn't because, oh, the, the minor leagues are weaker now, and so Giolito's the top guy. I mean, he was, you know, Julio Urias was the guy above him, really. That was about it. So, I mean, Giolito's been a top two to three pitching prospect in baseball for pretty much his entire professional career. If I'm a White Sox fan, 2017 maybe isn't going to be the, the kindest season, but that team is going to be loaded and loaded in a hurry. Yeah, for sure. And you look at this, their you know top 10 prospect list right now, according to Pipeline. Again, this will probably change later in the offseason uh, as things kind of settle down a bit and we get to reevaluate 2016 a little bit more. But right now their top four prospects are Mancada, Giolito, Kopech, and Lopez. And then 9 and 10 are Luis Alexander Basabe, uh, acquired in the... In a, in the Chris Sale deal and Dane Dunning that so now you know six of their top 10 prospects are guys they got in the the last week and a half uh it it is such a stronger system and if you listen to last week's broadcast you know you heard scouting director Nick Hostetler say you know we needed this we needed a good infusion of talent at the the minor league levels uh, especially if they're going to be rebuilding and you know to again tip the cap to Rick Hahn uh if if they identified you know that they were going to be undergoing a rebuilding mode. Well, now you've got a potential superstar in Yohan Mankata. Um, you know, if everything strikes well for him, if he can fix those contact issues, you've got a particular, you know, a potential top of the line pitcher who's kind of close in Lucas Giolito, a potential, you know, mid rotation guy in Lopez and, you know, a really, really good lottery ticket in Michael Kopech who could be a really good starter or reliever, you know, obviously a few steps away. We'll see how that works out. But one of the most exciting fastballs in the game, period, never mind just the minors. So, yeah, this this north side farm system has definitely become, you know, one of the two or three, I would say, to watch uh, for 2017. And they're not necessarily done yet either. Chicago White Sox. It's been uh, it's been a bit since we've talked about the White Sox as a organization that was building things in this regard I mean, they'd gone out and, and gotten some big talent pieces to fill in around guys who they felt like they had developed pretty strongly and I think had everything gone well. I mean, we saw the start last year for the White Sox. It just didn't hold out, but they obviously had a lot of cornerstone pieces there. Now, man, it's a reshaped team, but it is an exciting future on the south side of Chicago. Strike number two. 
Rule 5 draft is behind us, which is kind of crazy that we're already past the Rule 5 draft, and it worked out in kind of a crazy way, too. The San Diego Padres ended up getting the top three players selected in the Rule 5 draft, despite the fact they only picked one of those guys. Uh, But they come away with all three. Shortstop Alan Cordoba was their pick. Panamanian shortstop, who I actually got a chance to watch uh, the U23 Baseball World Cup back in October. He's a really fun player. He was the third pick in the draft, went to the Padres, but San Diego then traded for right-hander Miguel Diaz and catcher Luis Torrens. That's kind of the headline story of the Rule 5, but uh, give us your takeaways from this year's Rule 5, Sam. Yeah, I mean, you have to start this conversation with the Padres. Uh, They were the team of the most 40-man open 40-man spots entering the Rule 5 drafts, uh, obviously in a rebuild mode themselves. Uh, they they did this kind of same strategy in 2015. You know, they took Jabari Blash. They they found some success with Luis Perdomo, both of those guys still there in San Diego. Uh, Blash was actually, you know, I think he was designated for assignment, then st- still stuck out in the organization. So, you know, this is a chance to, to take a chance on, uh, you know, some three – young players that they think could actually help them, you know, probably down the line. Nobody thinks Alan Cordoba is ready. He's certainly an exciting player. As you mentioned, Tyler, uh, just last year, he hit 362 at rookie level Johnson city. Uh, but that's the problem. It was at Johnson city, which is, you know, he hasn't even played a full season of, uh, professional baseball yet. Uh, he's hit 342 or above each of the last two seasons. He played the 2015 season in the Gulf coast league. So, you know, he was left unprotected by the Cardinals because they thought, you know, this either this kid's definitely not going to stick or nobody's going to take a chance on him. And the Padres will, you know, we'll see what happens. It's it's a hundred thousand dollar bet. They're going to bring him into to camp, you know, see if he's six. They might try to stash him as best they can, uh, maybe get some, you know, pinch running opportunities out of him. He's definitely not going to be their starting shortstop. He's might not even be their second string shortstop. Um, but you know, for a guy like him, he was number 19 in the Cardinal system coming into the draft. Now, you know, they, they get to see what they can get out of him. Uh, $100,000, is at, even though they increased the amount for the Rule 5 draft this year, um, that's still not that much to acquire a player when you think about it, especially one with Cordova's uh, capabilities. The other two they take were Miguel Diaz, a right-handed pitcher out of the, the Brewer system. They had to trade for him. Uh, after the Twins took him with the first pick. And Larice Torrens, who they traded for from the Reds, a uh, catcher from the Yankee system, a guy who's undergone some shoulder problems but has a really good arm when healthy at a 40.7 caught stealing rate, has always looked like a potential backup, really solid defensive catcher in the majors. Now they get to push him there. Uh, Diaz also has a, I would say, out of the three, has the best chance to stick. Uh, he he has some starting experience, some relief experience. Put up a 3.71 ERA, 91 strikeouts, and 29 walks, and 94 two-thirds innings at Class A Wisconsin last year in that Brewer system. Um, but has the the good stuff to to stick as a reliever. Um, could fill that Perdomo role that they used last year. Uh, you know, starting out of the bullpen, eventually working his way into the rotation. At, can be a little bit of a Swiss Army knife that way with him. Also a way to control their innings. Uh, but the Padres, you know, nobody really expects them to uh, contend in 2017. You know, put in a thought for uh, Will Myers, who, you know, is going to be their shining star next year as young talent like Manuel Margot and Hunter Renfro kind of comes up and, and some of these younger guys as well that they took here. 
Um, so, you know, the Padres saw this rule five as an opportunity to get some young talent cheaply. And they certainly took advantage. Uh, the other team I want to talk about in that kind of same vein was the Baltimore Orioles, who it's a little surprising when you think about it, because, you know, the Orioles we suspect will be at least in the conversation for most of 2017 in, in terms of that AL East race. Uh, you know, we'll see if the Red Sox pull away. They, they're certainly getting aggressive, but uh, that should be another con competitive division. And they take a, a gamble themselves, taking two outfielders, Anuri Tavares from the Red Sox, a guy who hit 335, had a 506 slugging percentage, um, you know, 13 triples, 18 stolen bases, has some good speed between double, or he did that at double A, got in a couple triple A games in the Red Sox system. And then they also took Anthony Santander. Uh, from the Indians, a guy with plenty of power, 20 home runs and 42 doubles last year at Class A Advanced, uh, Lynchburg in the Indian system. So they took two outfielders. It might be a competition between those two uh, to see who can be the fourth or fifth outfielder. Uh, the, the Orioles found some success last year with Joey Rickard. He was a guy who stuck the entire year. He's back for 2017. So they're, they're going that route again. Uh, normally, you don't see you know contending teams try to take a Rule 5 pick just because the uh, you know the competition for major league spots on a contending team can be so competitive, um, but you know the Orioles probably saw a hole in their system. They they didn't see any guys close enough to to fill those outfield spots already there, and uh, they made two picks. So I'm gonna be kind of keeping an eye to see uh, if either one or if they even try, decide to try to keep both, uh, how that's gonna play out in Baltimore. Strike three this week, Sam. We're nearing the end of organization all-star stories. We are, we're hitting the back end of the alphabet as we get close to Christmas. We're wrapping things up next week. We've only got uh, two or three of these left, but we've got uh, three in the rearview mirror from the last time that we talked. Uh, the St. Louis Cardinals, the Tampa Bay Rays, the Seattle Mariners, some intriguing aspects to all those systems. But the Cardinals find themselves in kind of an interesting spot right now. Um, a, a long rivalry with the Chicago Cubs in which the Cardinals got to be the team that said, yeah, but rings – it kind of goes hollow into 2017 with the Cubs reigning as champions, not only in that division, but as World Series champions as well. And the cards are in, I guess, somewhat of a transitional phase right now in that there are pieces on the way from the system. Is the system as deep as it has been in years past? Is it as talented as it has been in years past? Not entirely sure. What's the what's the outlook for the Cardinals and, and how do the organization all sorts fit into that? Yeah, so I think the one thing we always talk about with the Cardinals is their ability to develop pitching in particular it just seems like they really turn out arms really well uh and in terms of their system right now they're they're set up pretty well you know i know alex reyes is a guy that's going to consistently come up in trade talks uh for any team you know if the cardinals are trying to add pieces it's always going to start and end with uh alex reyes uh you know he got some time at the major league level last year and looked really really good there down the stretch for them uh, but in terms of organization all-stars, I'm going to kind of pivot to Luke Weaver, another guy who got a chance at the major league level. Uh, didn't do nearly as well as Reyes did there. He posted a 5.70 ERA in nine appearances, eight of which were starts. But at the Meyer League level, he was just lights out. I mean, he he uh, started the year at AA Springfield, posted a 1.40 ERA in 77 innings there with 88 strikeouts and 10 walks. Pretty much across the board, those are incredible numbers uh 0.95 whip he was keeping guys off the bases he was getting strikeouts at at good rates uh the thing with weaver is he doesn't he hasn't really shown an ability to stay completely healthy uh yet in his first couple minor league seasons he was a first round pick out of florida state in 2014 uh 
this was just the second time he's cracked 100 innings. Uh, barely did that this year between the majors and the minors. I think he w- was at 119 and a third, only did 105 and a third in, in 2015. So uh, has had his you know injury problems in the past. Uh, he's not entirely built to be you know a dominant starter. Uh, he's, he's kind of on the shorter side at 6'2". He's listed at 170. Uh, that looks about right. Uh, but he's got a, a pretty decent fastball. Everybody loves his changeup. I know that's for sure. Uh, the thing that's kind of missing with him, I think, is the development of a third pitch, something to get, you know, especially those major league bats uh, really off. You know, MLB pipeline gives him a 45 on the 2080 scale for both a slider and a curve. So he really needs that third pitch if he's going to stay in the majors as a starter, as a number three, number four type. Um, but the way he was able to dominate at Double A Springfield, he's kind of the standout for me in this Cardinal system this year, at least from a minor league performance side. Uh, but you know, we talked about Alan Cordoba earlier, uh, Kelsey, or no, it was actually Alex Kraft. I'm sorry, Alex Kraft, who did uh, the write up for this, had Alan Cordoba as the honorable mention for shortstops uh, behind to- Tommy Edmond, a sixth round pick in this year's draft, uh, who performed really well at State College. To your kind of question about is this system as packed as it once was, I don't think that's necessarily the case. I know some people are really high on Harrison Bader. Uh, hasn't really shown it for me yet. Uh, you know, Delvin Perez was their first-round pick last year. Uh, he fell to them after you know concerns about performance-enhancing drugs uh, before the draft and a pre-draft test. So I'll be interested to see what he can do in a full season. A lot of people really like him, but if, you know, those drug concerns are real, uh, you know, that could affect his performance going forward. Uh, some other pieces of like, I, I just don't see the top talent that was once there, especially if Reyes is sticking in the majors. But uh, there there are certainly some pieces to like here. Um, you know, whether it's the Cardinal system of old, I wouldn't quite put it that way. But it's definitely, a, you know, right around the middle of the pack, I would say. Uh, Tyler, I know you had the Seattle Mariners org all-stars uh, in which you got to feature somebody. Would you call them your namesake? Are you they their namesake? How did the- I think he would be my namesake. I think they would both be my namesake in that they're younger. Okay. Two Tylers, Tyler Two Marlette Tyler. Right. and uh, Tyler O'Neill's biceps. It wasn't even Tyler <laughs> O'Neill. We just, we just put his arms in as an organization all-star, which they probably could be just on their own. I was going to um, say you could have Python number one be one outfield yeah. spot and Python number two be the, the other outfield spot. I think, I, digress. I, I think I've already crossed over the realm where it's creepy with how much I talk about Tyler O'Neill's arm. So I'm just going to continue going for it. Somebody finally commented on it one time. I made a joke. The Mariners tweeted out like a, a offer for like uh, discounts on t-shirts. And I was like, Oh, these won't be big enough to fit Tyler O'Neill's arms. And somebody responded was like, you're really obsessed with Tyler O'Neill's arms. Aren't you? <laughs> Have you seen Tyler O'Neill's arms? They're magnificent. I mean, he could move Canada himself. They're pretty amazing. Yeah. Um, <laughs> So, yes, Tyler O'Neill, one of the Seattle Mariners all-stars for the 2016 season, unsurprisingly, is a second-ranked prospect in the organization. And, you know, Sam and I have discussed this a lot before. People were kind of wondering, how is he going to be not being in the California League? Well, not being in the California League, no problem for Tyler O'Neill, who was a beast for the AA Jackson Generals, led Jackson to a Southern League title. The thing that was crazy about Tyler O'Neill was he seemed to get better as the season went along. Batted 293, 374, 508, 24 homers, drove in 140. He was Southern League MVP, Southern League Championship Series MVP. He was a midseason all-star, end-of-season all-star, AFL selection. He was Seattle's minor league hitter of the year. But his best work 
came in the playoffs, seven games. He batted 448, 515, 828, three homers, nine RBIs in seven games, and led Jackson uh, to a Southern League title. So that was pretty impressive. But what I thought was what stood out to me about the Seattle system was the fact that guys came from really every step of the organization and two guys stood out to me to really keep an eye on third baseman, Nick Zamorelli, who played 65 games with Everett, batted 329, 391, 467. And his Everett teammate, Eric Filia, who was fantastic, 68 games he played for the Aqua Sox, captured Northwest League batting title, batted 362, 450, 496. He was a 20th round pick out of UCLA and what I really liked about the conversation that I got to have with Andy McKay, Seattle's uh, farm director, was this line. He said, quote, he's a kid who was obviously a later pick than Zamorelli. Zamorelli, his teammate, uh, went, I believe, in the sixth round. Uh, but continuing, he said, um, as I lose my spot in the quote, which is terrific, as always, uh, he <laughs> said, but he's at the point now where your pick stopped mattering a long time ago. And that I thought was very telling in this Mariner system right now, get guys in, see what they can do. And if guys prove that they can play, prove they should be everyday players, they're going to get spots. They're going to get nods. And that system, just the culture and the emphasis on turning things around on a personal level and account accountability level and a learning how to win type of level, I thought was really fascinating. Um, especially because it's something that we talked about with Andy McKay after he got that job, Sam, when he was on the show, was those two things do not need to be mutually exclusive. Developing players and learning how to win. In Seattle, we've talked about it a lot. They went from having the sixth worst overall record among their minor league affiliates in 2015 to the best combined winning percentage in 2016. They win a title at Double A. They've got a league finalist uh, in the Northwest League there with that Everett team. The Clinton Club was a league finalist. I mean, they had a lot of really successful team seasons and sprinkled amidst them a ton of really successful individual seasons. And a lot of those guys were guys who needed it. I mean, guys like DJ Peterson, who seems like he's back on track. He got our nod at first base, uh, just some really good storylines in that Seattle system. Yeah. That's what kind of amazed me is it's one thing to, to say that, you know, and go back and listen to the interview. I think I say this almost every week, go back and listen to our other interviews to inform yourself about what we're talking about now. But, uh, you know, with Andy McKay, it's one thing to just kind of say it that, you know, we're going to turn this around. We're going to get guys feeling like they should win, uh, that winning is important at every level of the minors. And then it's another thing to do it that quickly. Like if they did this in two or three years, we would say, oh, that's a nice success story by the Mariners. Look at where their system used to be and look where it is now. It happened in one year. Like they have a bona fide potential, really good player. Yeah. Really, really good prospect in Tyler O'Neill. Edwin Diaz. Uh, you know, was their maybe top prospect to begin the year and is now, you know, an elite reliever very quickly. Uh, this seems like a, a system that is clicking on and the right cylinders. Uh, you know, we'll have to see what, what that means for the major league level going forward. They would love to put some really good players around Robbie Cano. Uh, we'll see if, uh, you know, management there who loves to wheel and deal. We do know that Jerry DePoto. Uh, if they kind of keep that together, but they are molding this system to be better than it was. And it's working very quickly. He has not traded for us yet. Although we had discussed that that was a possibility. Well, would he trade for us or would he just trade us even though he doesn't have our rights? Well, no, that's probably true. He'd just get rid of us. He would trade us for for sure. I would be like, I'd be sold to like an overseas league. Maybe like just <laughs> whatever. It was like fifteen grand. Like Tyler Mullins' rights were traded to the Brisbane uh, <laughs> Bandits today. We got to get a new turtle for behind the plate in Clinton. Just take, 
take the loud one on the podcast. He's annoying. <laughs> one thing that um, I don't mean to point out for Mariners fans, and I'm sorry that I'm going to do this. Oh, no. But I did not realize the last time the Mariners made the playoffs was that team that won 116 games in 2001. Can you believe that? Is that entirely true? Yeah. I mean, Can you that believe was, that? Yeah. Yeah. It I makes me not... sad for, I mean, Mariners fans, but it also makes me sad for Ichiro. Yeah, you know exactly. Yeah. No, that blows my mind. The Mariners were in the playoffs in 95, 2000, and 2001. They lost to the Yankees in back-to-back ALCS in 2000 and 2001, and they have not returned to the postseason since, and that blew my mind. I really, like, I checked the baseball reference page over and over thinking, no, there's no way. I got to be missing this, but it's been 15 years. They, I mean, they had some good teams there for a while. There, ninety-three wins in two thousand two, two, uh, ninety-three wins in two thousand three, eighty-eight wins in two thousand seven, yeah, eighty-six wins last year. I mean, that's it's not close, but they're second in the division. So, you know, the, a couple moves, a couple little tweaks here and there, and uh, you know, maybe they can hopefully build something while Felix Hernandez is still really, really effective. They've got some pieces on the way, so you can go check those stories out right now at MILB.com. And like we said, we are wrapping up Organization All-Stars coming up next week. Our final ones will run, so uh, that'll give you some good downtime during the holidays. Your family's annoying you. You can catch up on all 30 Org All-Stars, which will be rolled out by the end of next week, which is just uh, crazy to me. Crazy, man, that we're already at this point of the year. Um, we do have some uh, some down notes uh, that we have to cover. And unfortunately, we've we've had to discuss things like this way too often over the last couple of years. Um, but a couple of prospects who are no longer with us, and uh, they are for different reasons, but that makes them no less heartbreaking. And it's not just prospects, uh, but we also had a member of the minor league family who passed away this past week as well. Um, El Paso Chihuahua's groundskeeper, Nate Jones, uh, was killed following a car accident in which he suffered internal injuries, pretty massive internal injuries. He was uh, involved in a fender bender, and then while on the side of the highway evaluating damage to his car, he was struck by another car and passed away about a week later in the hospital. That was last week, and we've been thinking about the Chihuahua's family and, and the minor league family of Nate Jones, who's worked in a couple of different spots uh, prior to going to El Paso, um, and our thoughts and prayers are with his family, who have, uh, by the way, set up a GoFundMe page um, to help cover some of the costs of of uh, his funeral and all of that. It was initially created to help with some of his medical expenses, but uh, you can find that information in the story in which we wrote about Nate. Um, and so we've been thinking about the Chihuahuas family. And then right on the heels of that, over the weekend, two really heartbreaking stories. Minnesota Twins minor leaguer Jorman Landa was killed in a car accident in Venezuela. His home country uh, was killed near Caracas. And uh, that is a story that has become very sadly familiar to us over the last few years with prospects being killed in car accidents. Of course, Oscar Tavares was the most notable story among those for at least a name that people were most familiar with. But that's happened, I would say, six or eight times over the last two years now. Um, and the the final story, Yankees pitching prospect Alexander Figueredo was shot and killed in Venezuela on November 27th. That was according to a report in the New York Post. Um, so just wanted to extend our, our best wishes to all of those minor league families, all of those players, uh, immediate families, um, things that nobody ever wants to have to digest or talk about. And unfortunately it's happened. It seems like way too much as of late. Yeah, for sure. And, and in all three cases, I mean, it's sad to pass on at any time of life, but, um, you know, in all three cases, including Nate Jones, who I think was only 24, 
Yeah. Um, you know, you think about what could have been, what already was, you know, for those two players to, to make it to the minor leagues, a, a goal so many who have ever picked up a bat get, uh, and they were working their way through. Uh, and for Nate Jones, who who seemed, you know, deeply beloved by everybody who worked in El Paso, uh, really seemed to love his job and what he was doing as a groundskeeper. Um, you know, to see people working towards their goals and then their lives taken so quickly is, it, like I said, it's it's heartbreaking at any time of life. But uh, to see all three go so early is is uh, certainly you know hurt hurts us, even though we don't know them personally. But we, uh, like you said, Tyler, we extend all our our uh, thoughts and prayers out to the families of of the players and and Nate Jones and you know their separate organizations as well. So that brings us to a close for this week's edition of Three Strikes. Uh, coming up, we're going to head back to the winter meetings from last week. Sam got a chance to sit down with Dan Lunetta, who's the director of minor league operations in the Detroit Tigers system. There's so much tumult going on in that division right now with teams retooling, rebuilding, getting set for 2017. I think there are some questions surrounding the Tigers organization and what exactly that team will look like going forward. Big spenders, obviously, for a long period of time, but they got some good talent in the minor league system. This interview, which comes to us from the winter meetings last week, though, comes on the heels of Dan Lunetta being named the winner of the Sheldon Chief Bender Award. The Chief Bender Award goes to someone in minor league baseball with distinguished service who has been instrumental in player development. So on the minor league and the major league side, Dan Lunetta, the most recent honoree, past award winners in that award include Buddy Bell of Chicago White Sox in 2015, Lois Hudson of the Cincinnati Reds in 2014, Brian Graham of the Orioles in 2013. Really cool award that dates back uh, nearly a decade now. And the most recent winner is Dan Lunetta, who joins the show from the Tiger system and last week's winter meeting next so kind of just to start off what, what was your reaction to winning the the bender award and um you know what was it like last night to, to get that i was quite surprised when i received the call from pat o'connor uh, needless to say i was a bit overwhelmed i uh, was very honored uh, and privileged to have been awarded uh, the Chief Bender Award, and last night I thought went extremely well. It was a thrill for me to be able to uh, have my family there and to be able to uh, say my thanks to a lot of people who have been so instrumental in my career path and what it's taken to get to uh, this stage of life in my career. So overall, enormously happy and grateful and have you ever crossed paths with chief bender before i mean what, what was that part of it like for you well i worked with chief uh for one year i was with the reds and uh, he was in his role as the uh, farm director and i was a traveling secretary at that time so i didn't have any direct work with chief but the organization was small and we saw each other every day. So I got to know Chief quite well, and that really made this all the more special for me, that I was able to receive an award uh, named after Chief, and there was a, a personal touch there for me. Mm -hmm. And you started you know, with Jamestown, Rochester, Buffalo, and the minors. Looking towards now, you know, all these late years later, how has the minor league kind of landscape changed? Oh my goodness, it's changed enormously. It's not anything like it was when I first started out, 
minor league operations today are run like many major league operations. Mm -hmm. Front office sizes have grown exponentially. The ballparks are state of the art. I think it's phenomenal how minor league baseball has evolved since my time as a minor league general manager. And it just never ceases to amaze me just how far minor league baseball has come, the enormous popularity of minor league baseball. And certainly that's a great tribute to guys like Pat O'Connor, Tim Brunswick, uh, all of the tremendous minor league owners and front offices. Uh, they, they just have done a stupendous job in creating the, the popular sport that it is today. Mm -hmm. And you still cross paths, obviously, with a lot of minor league GMs. What were you doing then as a GM that they're not doing now or vice versa? How has that role kind of changed? Well, I think technology has uh, changed the way we do business. Um, but back in the day when I was a general manager, we had a very limited budget. So we weren't in a position to be able to market our clubs aggressively. Um, there was some uh, advancement to that in, in Buffalo when I was there, but during my time in Jamestown, the club was owned by the parent club, and uh, we operated on a very small budget. There was only two of us in the front office. Um, we didn't have any technical technological advances back then. I mean, in, in a way, it was somewhat primitive. And, and I think that's where the significance lies, is just how we operate clubs today and the enormity of it. And uh, it's just amazing to me. And kind of walk people through what minor leagues ops is now. I mean, they, they hear minor league ops, they think player development, that kind of thing. But what else goes into that, that department? Primarily, I mean, a lot of what I do is falls in the area of rules compliance, finance and budgeting, of course, the, the relationships that I have been able to develop over the years with our affiliate partners, uh, how we work together, uh, there's contract work that I do. Um, I basically handle everything that's off the field. Mm. We have personnel who handle the on-field work. Dave Owen is our director of player development and Dave Littlefield is our vice president of player development. So they've got the on-field uh, part of it and I handle everything that's off the field but I really have been so blessed to have worked in this area uh, for so long. I, I truly enjoy uh, the minor league part, the player development part. My baseball roots are in the minor leagues so I've really enjoyed the opportunity to to do this uh, all the years that I have. And how is 2016 kind of a sticky situation with that, with Lakeland and their stadium situation? Um, you know, how were you guys able to work with that? Well, it wasn't easy, but that really fell more on Ron Myers and Zach Burek, uh, who run the Florida State League team. It was a real challenge, but we got through it fine. And uh, we didn't have any major hiccups or major snafus, and we got through it. And now we're looking forward to getting into the new facility uh, next spring. Mm -hmm. What's going to be different about the new one? It's a 40, $44 million renovation, and uh, there will be significant upgrades to the fan experience. Uh, some of the seating has been redesigned. Uh, there will be upgrades to uh, 
concessions and novelties and the sweets, uh, we have constructed a, a new three-story building that will house both major league and minor league clubhouses, a new weight room, executive offices. We have we have one of the fields in the back that we now have replaced with artificial turf uh, so that our guys can work during inclement weather. So it, it's quite significant. There's going to be a 360 wraparound where fans are going to be able to walk around the entire facility uh, during a game and basically see a game from, from any angle. So uh, those who have been familiar to uh, Joker Martian Stadium, uh, when they come out next spring, they're going to see an entirely new entity. Yeah, for sure. And, uh, you know, you've been with the Tigers a couple of years now. What would you kind of classify the state of the Tiger system right now, both on the and off the field? Um, well, I mean, on the field, uh, we're, I guess you could say we're sort of entering into a, uh, a new phase on the field with our major league club. Uh, Al Avila has challenges that he has to meet uh, both financial and competitive uh, and that's going to maybe create some challenging days ahead but uh, I think the state of the Tigers is in very good shape um, it's a, been a tremendous place to work for the last uh, 13 years and uh, hopefully we'll be a part of it for a, a long time coming yeah and you mentioned Avila he introduced you last night you also said you worked with Dave Dombrowski he'll bring you to the Tigers what is it like working with those two different GMs what are the kind of differences um, working under them everybody has their own management style and uh, uh, I mean I've known Al for over 20 years now, 20, 25 years, and so it isn't as though I'm unfamiliar with Al. We've worked together for so long. Uh, we're friends, uh, just as Dave and I have been over all the years. So the transition was really very seamless. Mm -hmm. And uh, this is the last one I wanted to ask you about. Everybody has kind of Expos nostalgia now. So what, what's your favorite story from your time working there, however brief it was? I don't know that I've got a favorite story. I've got a lot of wonderful memories from my time with the Expos. Uh, I think probably my fondest memory was the day that I got a call from uh, Bill Stoneman, uh, who offered me my first opportunity to work at the major league level. And uh, that'll be a memory that I'll live with uh, forever. It was uh, an incredibly joyful day. I was ecstatic beyond words and uh, behind that are just an awful lot of good memories about being with the Expos. Mm -hmm. And do you think baseball could survive in Montreal again or is it kind of a closed doors situation? Well I'm not in the position to uh, make those determinations. Right. I only know that I hope one day Montreal gets baseball back again. We have entered one of the really quiet uh, areas of the minor league baseball calendar, but it doesn't mean that we are devoid of news as we welcome Benjamin Hill back to the show for uh, a, a rejoiner with all of us back in our, you know, uh, requisite areas, you guys back in uh, in New York. How was the finish of the, the winter meetings, Ben? It was good. You know, when I talked to you guys last week, that was uh, Wednesday afternoon. I was feeling the crunch of uh, getting some blog posts up, getting some stories up. Um, how exhausting that entire process is over all that time. And I, I listened to a bit of my interview from last week, and I was like, man, I sound haggard, ragged. And, uh, of course, I'm back to 100% now because nothing can keep me down. 
And uh, the meetings on the whole were great. You know, usually I have to get back home and then sort of collapse and then wake back up and say, oh, yeah, I'm really glad I did that. Uh, they are a mile a minute. Uh, after I talked to you guys on Wednesday, uh, well, Sam was there as well. Yep. We went to the gala at yeah. Nationals Park, uh, went through security to get into the ballpark. Kind of surprised me that a private event had they security. They had security for a private event of all baseball employees. Yes. Right. Huh. But you oh, know what, Tyler? Okay. You okay. never can be too careful. Hey, uh, you know. It's, uh, they, yeah. had, they had a red carpet leading up to the security. Yeah, event. yeah. <laughs> It was a VIP. You if guys that, are VIPs. If that is not a metaphor. Huh. Interesting. Yeah, but it was great. Okay. You know, uh, it's great to end the meetings at the gala, see everyone in the in the whole minor league universe who's been attending, um, you know, get some free food and drink and uh, say goodbye to the winter meetings in style. So it was uh, it was a lot of fun and uh, always enjoy it and look forward to next year. I just said always enjoy it, but about 80 percent of it, I don't enjoy it. But the 20 percent I do enjoy, I enjoy so much that it makes it on the whole uh, a positive experience. Okay. Well, you know, it's done and it's behind you now. So looking back on the winter meetings, um, you know, the, the craziness that happens at the winter meetings, we discussed last week. So much of that happens on the major league side and the minor league side. It's kind of more of a, a business recap of 2016, but there wasn't, uh, exactly all of the business done for 2016. And we got a very big announcement this week, which will affect baseball going forward, starting in 2019, but also a team that is in existence for the next two years. This is a press release from the Houston Astros quote, the Houston Astros in the city of Fayetteville, North Carolina have signed a 30 year lease agreement, which will move the classes club, the clubs class a advanced affiliate to Fayetteville for the 2019 season and beyond end quote. That's, I don't want to say the worst kept secret in minor league baseball, but we've known this has been going on for a while that the Astros would eventually move to Fayetteville. The ballpark was kind of approved and was getting underway over the summer, but there wasn't a a team there for it. Then when the, the Astros announced that they were going to be leaving Lancaster, became pretty obvious uh, to people outside of baseball or outside of the, the intricacies of this deal that they would be going to the Carolina league for this team that ends up as Bowie's Creek. Just kind of give us all the moving parts of this situation, Ben. Yeah, I mean, you said it, it's big news, and it is big news in the sense that um, this definitely affects the minor league landscape, but it, it's been a foregone conclusion. We've talked about it unofficially. You know, I've written about it unofficially for a long time, You know, making nods to the fact that this was going to happen. We've certainly talked about this before. But essentially, yes, two teams left the California League, as we've mentioned many times before. Two new teams are therefore joining the Carolina League. One of those teams is going to be an Astros affiliate in Fayetteville. That was always what the Astros were working toward, but it was never official until now, till the city of Fayetteville and the Astros agreed to build a new ballpark, which will open in 2019 uh, with a 30-year lease agreement. So the city's ponying up some $33 million. The Astros, in turn, are signing a 30-year lease agreement, which is you know their signal to the city that you know we're not going anywhere. Because obviously, when there's public funding involved, the city doesn't want to spend all that money and then not have a guarantee that the team in question, you know, won't, you know, will just leave after and a short which, amount of time. And which, just to, to give you a comparison, uh, the Texas Rangers in the city of Kinston signed a 12-year agreement with them moving their affiliate there. So that's the other team that's going to the Carolina League and the agreement not as long, obviously not building a new ballpark there, but that gives you kind of a, a barometer, a measuring stick for that 30-year agreement. Yeah, exactly. 30 years is very much obviously on the high end of uh, how long a lease can go. Um, but they finally worked out the details. This has been in the works for months and months and months. Fayetteville was always the first choice for um, the, for the this new Carolina League team. Uh, as we've talked about in the past, in the interim, 
this team will be the Bowie's Creek Astros playing at Campbell Field, a, a college stadium for the next two years. That's strictly a placeholder. And then in 2019, the Fayetteville Astros will make their, de- their debut. But by the time they do make their debut, they will have gone through the requisite uh, branding process and will most certainly, not most certainly, most likely not be the Fayetteville Astros, but be the Fayetteville uh, insert minor league wacky team name, wacky team name Something here. or others. You know, I think the military, a military nod's a strong bet in Fayetteville because, um, you know, huge, braggers, uh, something like that. The braggers, braggers, the, the braggarts. Yeah. yeah. The Fort, Fort Bragg. Uh, you know, we, we got to work on this a little bit. I don't, I, I'm going to guess right now it's not going to be the Fayetteville bra- <laughs> braggarts, um, but a huge military population. That'll be a big portion of their fan base for sure. And, uh, it's official now 2019. They just have to build the ballpark, which as we've seen in the past, doesn't always go as smoothly as uh, everyone would like, but uh, you know they have a good time frame now, and uh, looking forward to Carolina League Baseball in Fayetteville in 2019, and that'll uh, mark the return of affiliated baseball to Fayetteville, and we all miss the dear departed uh, Cape Fear Crocs who previously existed, and if you recall, and their theme song, and their theme song. If you recall the all team theme song epi- uh, episode of the show before the show. Uh, look it up if you've never heard it, but the Cape Fear Crocs theme song is classic. The Fayetteville Astros, whoever they may turn out to be, need to have a theme song, and it needs to leave up, live up to the Cape Fear Crocs theme song. Well, I, I kind of want to go back to this 30-year lease agreement thing because one thing that's different about this, obviously, is that the Astros are going to own the Fayetteville club, right? The Astros themselves. It's not going to be an independent owner like most Meyer Correct. Clubs. The Astros are the owner of this Carolina League club that will play in Fayetteville in 2019. So that that takes me to my next question, which is obviously when we're talking about affiliations, we're talking about player development contracts, which are different from lease agreements, obviously. Lease agreement goes with the stadium. Player development goes with the the team. But does this lock in officially the Astros having their Class A advanced affiliate in Fayetteville for the next 30 years or once, you know, 30 years after the 2019 season? Or... Could it be, you know, is there still the potential for, you know, the Astros to move somewhere else after 10 years, something like that, based on their PDC? Well, there is no PDC when you own the team. Okay. So there's no PDC uh, in the case of the Fayetteville Astros because the Houston Astros own their minor league organization. So there's no PDC to renew when you own the team. Um, that said, you never know what could happen in the minor in the world of minor league baseball down the line. You know, maybe the Astros will want to sell the team, and another affiliate will come in, and X, Y, and Z. But the but the case maybe no no matter what happens, and all that's very unlikely. And I'm just saying anything can happen. Right. But the case is that there's a 30 year lease, and that's the city's way of securing, um, you know, regular substantial rent payments for a city for a stadium that they are committing a substantial amount of money toward. So a 30 year lease basically locks in that there's going to be some sort of minor league team there. Because whoever would have to own the team is taking on that lease agreement. That was would be how it would work. Or, again, we're getting very speculative, but if yeah. no, if I, um, the team was to leave and there would be no team at the stadium, the city of Fayetteville would be at least getting uh, rent payments <laughs> for, for the duration of 30 years. But, sure. but this is all about a commitment to um, this ballpark and this town for 30 years and, and – uh, that's certainly what we have to assume here, and that's that's really what all has been agreed upon. So it's a new look for the Carolina League for 2017, and it'll be a new look again in 2019 when the Bowie's Creek Astros turn into the Fayetteville whatever they will be, which at this point seems like that's uh, a possibility for a name. 
in minor league baseball, given the way things have gone, you could just call them the whatever they will bees, and they could have like a bee mascot. Like it seems as logical as rumble ponies or anything else, right? It is as logical. Well, no, no, You're forgetting <laughs> Tyler. No, rumble ponies is a good has a good tie. That is a right, good tie because Binghamton is the carousel yep. capital of the world. And there's a children's book that had something to do with rumble ponies. It was written in Binghamton. It's a good tie there. We're just, you know, playing to the angry masses. One thing that uh, our good friend Josh Jackson pointed out, and I, I just wanted to make this point in a vacuum, there never seems to be a collection of commentariat on Facebook or Twitter or anywhere that praises a team like the Astros for just going with Bowie's Creek Astros the way that there is a freakout of New Orleans baby cakes or Florida fire frogs or Binghamton rumble ponies. So... That's why they get those crazy names because it gets all you guys fired up. That's why that's why they do it. It creates a buzz, puts puts tails in the seats, as you'll say. But I just we noticed that Josh and I we were we were discussing one day. So anyway, keep an eye out in 2019 for whatever this Fayetteville team ends up being called. Um, and we'll we'll move on. Ben got a chance to catch up with Todd Radom, who is a very good friend of the podcast. Came on the show earlier this year after redesigning two league logos uh, for the 2016 season, the Southern League and the Appalachian League. This year. Todd is back. New look for uh, for the Northwest League, and just a good all around dude. But you got a chance to talk to Todd at the winter meetings as well. Yeah, you know I've obviously been writing about logos for many many years. Um, I've written about Brandios the most because they've done the most. Uh, you know Studio Simon, and I've gotten to know you know Jason and Casey from Brandios. I've gotten to know Dan Simon from Studio Simon, and uh, Todd Radom who does a little less work in the minors is someone who I was happy to meet because he is involved in minor league baseball and he's been involved uh, in sports logos at MLB, NBA, NFL for uh, 25 years. So he happened to be at the winter meeting, caught up with him, did an interview. So check the site, MILB.com, for a, a story about Todd Radom. His, his most uh, recent minor league work is the Northwest League logo, which is a beautiful logo. We've talked about that in the past. Also did Southern League logo, also did Appalachian League logo, um, did the original Brooklyn Cyclones logo, which is still the, the logo that the Cyclones use today. And uh, so I talked to him about his minor league work, but also just about, um, you know, the nature of his job and how it came to be and uh, the manner in which he operates. And I found him to be a really uh, thoughtful, reflective, interesting guy. And if there's one thing I've learned in this job is that um, people who love logos are super passionate about it and they like to read about all aspects. And I think they will like to read about, uh, you know, those who design them, such as Todd Radom. And, um, you know, maybe next week we can look at all the, um, logos that Todd has designed through the years and rate them uh, on a scale of one to 10. There we go. Well, I was going to say, like, what would you describe the rate style to be? I mean, we know Brandy Oast definitely has a style. It's usually cartoon character holding a baseball bat, that kind of thing. Uh, what would you say is the rate style? Uh, I'd say it's um, simpler, classier, a little more um, streamlined, uh, classic, kind of aesthetic he you know he talked when when i spoke to him he talked about you know how um he has such a love of the history of the game so he's not going to be someone who is uh you know going over the top in the designs and the colors and being super bold but he has a deep love respect knowledge of the history of the organizations for whom he's working and so i think you're going to see things with him that are reflective um, of the history that came before and not necessarily, you know, total reinventions. Um, but he's got, he's got a great eye and a great aesthetic. And, uh, he told me what makes a logo successful is proportions and balance and the use of negative space. And, uh, you can't have teeny tiny words in a large image embedded in the same thing. You cannot put a circle within a square. 
and also usability. This is not a fine art. It's a very collaborative process, and that speaks to another thing. Everyone's going to bring their own aesthetic into this process, but um, you're always working with a client who often has a lot of money at stake, and the larger the organization, the more people who have to sign off on it. So everything's going to be a collaborative process and not necessarily anyone's pure vision. If you want to uh, unleash your pure vision as an artist, you don't work in the field of logo design. You... Uh, you know, go off in the woods or to your uh, studio and just and just just create, just go wild. Todd Radom is one of the really good guys uh, on Twitter as well. If you are kind of a, a logo and a history and a uniform person, Todd's a great follow on Twitter, and and you can go back and find our interview with him, which was terrific as well uh, from earlier on in the year. And uh, so that really, I mean, we're wrapping up 2016, Ben. If there's anything that stood out to you, I mean, we've had various kind of threads that have tied together the few seasons that we've done the podcast now. Um, when you look back at 2016, what will stand out to you about, you know, either from the promotion side or the business side or just kind of the Ben's Biz world for 2016? What do you think the, the defining factor, the defining image of this year will be? Very tough to, you know, say defining image any year in minor league baseball when you're dealing with the 160 teams with uh, so many different ways in which they operate and market sizes and staff sizes and uh, all those sort of things. Uh, you know, I think obviously we're seeing the continuing trend and we keep talking about it of uh, rebranding towards uh, increasingly zany, irreverent identities. And, and that has certainly remained a trend. Um, theme jerseys and pop culture theme jerseys, uh, being a huge trend teams finding ways to connect nationally, you know, with their promotions, you know, everything's local in terms of the, the butts in the seats, but finding ways to uh, connect nationally, get viral attention and have packages for sale with merchandise and one-off identities that can go beyond the local market. And uh, I think you're going to keep seeing more of that kind of thing. And then for me, you know, I have my own personal experiences, but, um, you know, I will, I will very much remember this as the, as the year of the Appalachian League and getting to see that entire circuit in one fell swoop and uh, seeing the new Columbia Fireflies ballpark, um, you know, seeing Spokane and San Jose for the first time, uh, two of my favorite ballparks, really, that I've, that, have, that I've ever been to in their own way. So I have a lot of individual memories. And, and next week, I'll maybe try to put together a list of uh, some of my favorite articles and blog posts from the year because it's, uh, it's time to get reflective. I like it. It'll all be there, bensbiz.mlblogs.com, and, of course, on the site, milb.com. And Ben is on Twitter. He is there at Ben's Biz, and I'm sure I'll get a chance to talk to you before the holidays. But if not, enjoy it all, Ben. Thanks, Tyler. You too. Um, what are you going to do for the holidays, Tyler? I'll be out there, actually, for uh, for Christmas. Yeah, but every time you come out here, you never see me. No, that's true. You're always gone, or um, we just deliberately avoid each other. No, I'm like always up in Westchester because that's where my niece is, and like something about little kids and Christmas. Am I right? Like I have to go up there for it, which is lame. So Tyler, are you going <laughs> to ignore me again? That's what I'm getting at. Um, probably. No, Ben. I always want to hang out with Ben Hill and Sam Dykstra. Let's make it happen this time. All right, man. I'm here. I'm waiting. Okay deal i'm not doing anything for the holidays i'm a a lonely person and all i do is just wait for you know work to start again because that's the only thing i have going on in my life that's like the the saddest version of the i just look out the window and wait for spring who is that rogers hornsby it is okay one of the most uh oft repeated (laughs) twitter quotes in the off season of all time Anytime uh, someone we'll add Ben's like, to it's that. a great quote, but I'm it is. Like, I'm like, come on, we've heard that too many times. We've heard it. It's like a high school uh, senior exactly. you know, quoting Robert Frost ex- in their yearbook. I was it's gonna like, make oh, that you exact took the road comparison. not taken, really, really, because I think this is the most road taken I've ever seen using the road not taken in your senior quote. Life also, don't quote Rogers Horsby on Twitter. Yeah, Bueller. <laughs>
Thanks, Ben. All right, bye. Big thanks to Dan Lunetta of the Detroit Tigers. Big thanks to Benjamin Hill. And we are just about done with our last normal episode of 2016, right? Yeah. Yeah. Because next week we're going to be abnormal. I was going to say, do we want to tease what we're going to be doing? Well, it'll just be a little different. It'll be a little different than what you're used to. Yeah. Um, In a good way. Yeah. 2016 was weird. So we're going to go out weird. Uh, and we'll uh, look out for that next week. I don't want to say too much or get you too excited, but be on the lookout. Yeah, definitely we'll, don't get too excited. We'll be don't. here. Yeah, don't get too excited. I mean, yeah, we're not don't. Gonna, <laughs> still going to be me and Sam. I mean, yeah. <laughs> let's be honest. I'm um, going to be in Denver. You're going to be here. That's the only change. <laughs> we're doing opposites week. Yeah, that's what's, that's what's going on. But no, that's coming up on the show next week. So thanks a ton for tuning in to this week's edition. But yeah, cool stuff in store for you as we get you set for the holidays uh, and wrap up the 2016. Uh, second full season of the minor league baseball podcast excited for next weekend we will talk to you guys then 